Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. So, a lot has been written about 19th century medicine's worries about the possible effects of excessive education on female health. In particular, debates on the access of women to university provoked many physicians, such as the English psychiatrist Henry Maudsley and the American Edward Clark, to argue that too much intellectual strain went against women's natures, damaging their nervous systems and compromising their sexuality and fertility. In contrast, the role of music in 19th century female the role of music in 19th century female education has been seen primarily in the context of the middle class cult of domesticity, and the relationship to music to medicine in the period has generally been viewed in terms of music therapy. Nevertheless, for much of the century, as I'm going to talk about today, there was a serious medical discussion about the dangers of excessive music in girls' education. Although some prominent medical critics of female education paid little attention to music, these two, for example, don't say very much about music, or in fact regarded it as a very respectable accomplishment for girls, many of the area's leading psychiatrists and gynecologists argued that music could not only excite the imagination, but also overstimulate the nervous system directly, playing havoc with vulnerable female nerves and reproductive organs, and warned of the consequences of music lessons on the developing bodies of teenage girls. In so doing, they created a serious medical counterpart to the discussion of what, Edward, of what the critic Edward Hanslick, was famous critic of the 19th century, called the Klavierseuche, the piano plague. So today I will look at this medical critique of female musical education in the context of contemporary theories of the role of nervous stimulation and exhaustion in the causation of disease. It seems there are, two real, there are really two rival models of music's pathological effects on women, although they were often combined. On the one hand, you see the idea of female music making as a source of overstimulating sensuality, similar to excessive, unconsummated sexual excitement that was often believed to lead to nervous sickness. In this regard, music is a little bit like um, the novel, for example, the idea that reading too much Flaubert would overexcite women. On the other hand, there's this idea that music was a dry intellectual pursuit, a potential cause of modern fatigue that could lead to nervousness among women in the same way that excessive education could. So it's more like your maths homework than reading novels, so to speak. Um, so these are kind of contradictory, but people stick together anyway. Thus one, sees as I said, thus one sees contradictory thinking about music's relationship to schoolwork. Some physicians portrayed music as an extension of academic life, others saw it as a relief from intellectual work, while a third group argued that hard study will be a welcome change from music's frivolity and sensuality. To examine the interaction of these theories and how they relate to political and medical debates on the feminist new woman and the nature of music, the first section will consider it in relation to the neurasthenia diagnosis and the discipline of school hygiene. Then I'll examine the supposed threat of music's hypnotic power over women before concluding with a discussion of the debate of the, on the perils of music for women's gynecological health. So, the domestic piano player is the key image, perhaps, of the female musician in the 19th century, just sitting at home playing the piano by herself. And private music making in the home was, in the home was generally regarded as an especially female activity. Indeed, from the 18th century, playing the keyboard at home had become a central part 
of the habitus of female gentility. If you wanted to really prove that you were firmly in the middle classes, learning to play the piano was a pretty good way of going about it. It still is. Um, in contrast to the widespread hostility shown towards women who were involved in public life as intellectuals as blue stockings, this private musical sphere was on the whole eminently respectable. Certain female professional musicians, such as Clara Schumann, even found a place in the 19th century concert world, but it should be noted they were tolerated only within limits, with only with certain instruments, especially things like the piano, and not expected to have any success at composition. On the one hand, music was seen as a, f a sensual feminine art. Um, on the other hand, composition and serious musicianship were regarded as a heroic masculine business. The attitude of physicians reflected this ambiguity with many overtly approving of music as a ladylike pastime and others, as you shall see, denouncing the physical effects of music on women in the strongest terms. 19th century medical doubts about the role of music in female education drew on ideas of music as a form of nerve stimulation that had developed during the previous century. In contrast to the speculative metaphysics of earlier periods, ideas of cosmic harmony and the like, enlightenment considerations of music therapy generally emphasized the power of music on the nerves as a stimulation. However, this was generally understood in the context of the culture of sensibility, and it was generally assumed in the 18th century that music's essential effect was to refine the nerves rather than to overstimulate them. It was only at the end of the 18th century that a systematic medical critique of music emerged. Physicians such as Peter Lichtenthal, who's a friend of the Mozart family, was very important in promoting Mozart's music in Italy, incorporated thinking on nerve stimulation as a cause of disease developed by the like of the Swiss physician S.A.D. Tissot and also, of course, the Scots William Cullen and John Brown into work on the medical effects of music. In the following decades, the danger of music to female health became a commonplace already by the 1820s in books on dietetics, etiquette, psychiatry, and music criticism, especially in Britain and in Germany. Um, in fact, if anybody who's interested in Brunonianism here, probably quite a few people perhaps, um, the first generation of people to talk about music as a dangerous stimulation always use Brunonian language. Uh, the medical dangers of music were on the whole related to women in the context of assumptions about the vulnerability of female nerves that have been commonplace since the Enlightenment. Especially in the first half of the 19th century, the medical critique of female music-making focused on its supposed excessive sensibility, its sensuality, and its association with an idle elite. For example, the prominent Irish doctor James Johnson, who was the personal physician of William IV in this country, argued in his, um, actually very amusing, 1937 dietetic book, The Economy of Health, that music created nerves that, and I quote, are ultimately unstrung by perpetual vibration leading to depression of spirits often approaching to hypochondriasism. Not an easy word to pronounce. For young ladies, and I quote again, for whose sensitive nerves, susceptible feelings, exquisite sympathies, tender affections, and delicate organization are excited, stimulated, electrified, this could be disastrous for the countenance, the complexion, the gait, the whole physical and moral constitution of the female. Where Johnson fretted about the dangers of the sedentary life the music involves, he was part of a tradition that stretched back from the humors to modern medicine. Uh, but the language of nerves and electricity shows the influence of the idea of music in its direct stimulation. He also says that factory girls have nothing to worry about because their nerves are... Um, he literally says factory girls have nothing to worry about because, of course, their nerves are completely different. So in the 1830s, it's still very much focused on an elite. In the later decades of the 19th century, this model of music as a sensual stimulant was challenged by and combined with 
even though it contradicts it in many ways, the neurasthenia diagnosis of the American physician George Miller Beard, which became a highly influential way of thinking about nerves later in the last few decades of the 19th century. Although his model of, of the causation of sickness owed much to Enlightenment thinking on stimulation, other elements were more innovative. Beard gave a clearer role for sexual tension in causing nervous illness, and crucially, he saw the strains and fatigues of the modern world as a primary cause of what he saw as a peculiarly American nervousness. And there's a very famous article by Roy Porter who points out that in the 18th century for people like George Cheney, the modern world was um, bad for the nerves because you know, people were drinking too much tea and coffee and hanging around, being lazy all the time. That's to say for the elite. Uh, for Beard, it's really the other way around, that the modern world is overexciting because we're all kind of go-getter capitalists in New York is kind of the idea. His medical critique of modern lifestyles is based on, on a view of the body as more or less a battery that could run, be run down through overstimulation. In this context, music could be seen as a source of fatigue rather than of excessive sensuality. As the Canadian Grant Allen put this in his 1877 book, very interesting, Physiological Aesthetics, um, auditory nerves could be wearied, wearied by overuse and jarred by discordant sounds, and that all dissonance is fatigue. It's quite a common view already by the 1870s. Although many 19th century physicians advocated forms of music therapy and psychiatry, many others regarded music as, in the words of the leading Dutch psychiatrist, Jacob von Deventer, as a dangerous stimulant for people who were suffering from neurasthenia. His French colleague, Fernand Levien, in his 1901 Hygiene of Nervous People, pointed to music as a source of neurasthenic exhaustion, writing that, and I quote, the excitations of the ear are often the starting point for real nervous fatigue that aggravates the neuropathic state of over-excitable subjects. Similarly, the German physician Alfred Baumgarten wrote that music can overstimulate some neurasthenics. The more neurasthenic understands the music, the worse the level of overstimulation. Neurasthenics who are themselves musicians must be prevented from regularly playing music or singing during the course of their cure. As I said, that's not to say that music didn't play an important part in other asylums. It happens all the time. They had um, lunatics balls, very famous in Dickens. Anyway, Such apparent female vulnerability in the face of musical stimulation led to considerable debate about whether girls should play the piano at all, based in part on the kind of fears of overstimulated sensuality that James Johnson was expressing already in the 1830s, but therefore also on anxiety about the neurasthenic fatigue that might result. A central figure in this debate was the Austrian psychiatrist Richard von Kraft-Ebing, author, of course, of the very famous Psychopathia Sexualis, whose views on this subject were, um, in fact, endlessly repeated, not always with acknowledgement. When I was reading and going through all this uh, material, almost direct verbatim quotes from Kraft-Ebing kept on popping up, even when um, he wasn't acknowledged. Um, and he wrote that, in fact, he wrote very similar things about three or four different books, that one of the monstrosities of our modern civilization is the idea that every child of the higher classes must have a musical education. In cases of limited talent, studying the piano is an inadequate achievement which makes heavy demands on the physical and mental strength of the player and often creates nervousness and, in the case of untalented girls, if practiced too intensively or unwillingly, can become the cause of serious nervous diseases. Others went into more details, detail about the medical consequences of excessive female piano playing. J. Herbert Dixon in the Medical Magazine in 1900, for example, 
condemned excessive piano practice by girls, warning that the, and I quote, the baneful influence of the continual vibrations on the organ of corti and so on the brain could lead to pronounced neurasthenia with symptoms such as headaches, neuralgia, nervous twitchings, hysteria, melancholia, madness, etc. Can wonder what's covered by etc. Um, similarly, in one of my personal favorites, in his 1902 polemic Wieder die Musik, die gegenwärtige Musik sucht in ihre unheilvollen Wirkung, which means more or less the current addiction to music and its disastrous effects. This is a book against music in general. Um, then physician Norbert Grabowski condemned the dangers of the piano to women, comparing its effect to that of alcohol on men. The modern piano plague, he claimed, damaged culture, the family, and could lead to symptoms of exhaustion in the brain, open brackets, nervousness, close brackets, as well as disturbances of the circulation, nodes bleeds, regular headaches, excessive loss of weight, and anemia. Um, in fact, the way he talks about it is a threat to the family it really makes it sound um, like, like a panic about rock and roll in the 50s or something like that, or the 60s. It's this idea that the family is being undermined by people basically practicing, you know, playing Chopin on the piano at home um, by themselves. Um, Grabowski quoted the newspaper, the Berliner Zeitung, blaming nerve-stimulating musical practice for a wave of sickness amongst girls at the Elizabeth Schule, the Elizabeth School in Berlin, and even suggest that legislation should be brought in to prevent music damaging any world girls. As this newspaper article reflected, the booming school of school hygiene, really about you know, how to keep school, how, you know, how high the ceiling should be and how big the window should be and how to have proper toilets, that kind of stuff, but also how to, be, how to improve the spiritual health of children, big genre around 1900. Um, it's, it's, concerned itself a lot also with music. For example, the Viennese professor Leo Burgerstein's book Handbuch, des, uh, well, Handbuch of School Hygiene in 1982 states that girls, again it's always girls, must not be damaged with music lessons, saying, and I quote, that they are a serious danger. Again, echoing what Kraft Ebing wrote, mediocre pupils who are not gifted at music become not only an ordeal for other people, we all know about that, but also form the largest, the largest contingent of the victims of excessive strain. The largest contingent. As I say, it's more dangerous, as far as he's concerned, than alcohol, etc. In the early decades of, this of the 20th century, this is a principally a concern in relation to the daughters of... I'll start again. In the early decades of the 19th century, as I said, this is principally a concern in relation to the daughters of the elite. We heard before about factory girls not being, having to worry about it. But the rise of mass education and cheaper factory-produced musical instruments over time meant that it really became a subject of concern for school hygiene at, and for, becomes part, really, of this highly politicized medical discourse about the moral and mental health of the masses. Music becomes very much part of that. So, music and hypnotic music. So, women and hypnotic music. So along with the danger of overstimulation, another threat many thought that music posed to women's health was its supposed ability to hypnotize female listeners. Music was already, already seems to have played an important role in the animal magnetism. The techniques created in the 1770s by the German physician Franz Anton Mesmer, the combined fixing patients with a literary mesmeric gaze with a theory of a universal fluid that could be manipulated to bring around about health. What would later come to be called hypnotism seems to have played a significant part in Mesmer's treatment, but it was his French pupil de, de Pussigur who coined the term magnetic sleep or artificial somnambulism for the hypnotic state often achieved. Mesmer, interestingly, regarded both animal magnetism and music as matters of sympathetic vibration. He thought they were parallel phenomena. 
um, and argued that animal magnetism could be communicated, propagated, and reinforced by sounds. And many of his contemporaries who uh, attended these treatments, this here is an example from the, um, either from the 1770s or 1780s, it's not clear, of, and you see people, play, a woman there in the corner playing the harpsichord, and the monk and the people in the top right singing. And many contemporaries believe that the pianos, violins, and harps, especially the glass harmonica that featured very prominently in his treatments, were responsible for many of his apparent successes. The supposed, the apparent ability of mesmeric music to overcome the will and make female listeners vulnerable to the sinister advances of the magnetizer was also a widespread concern. Almost every, every caricature of mesmerism has an uh, a, a older magnetizer going after a teenage girl. And already in 1784, the French Royal Commission set up to investigate Mesmer's claims um, that included Benjamin Franklin, implicitly compared the mesmeric crisis to an orgasm. So it's very clearly related to sex. The idea of music as a hypnotic threat to women in particular continued well into the 19th century, even as hypnosis tried to distance itself from this quasi-occult um, past. For example, the link between the nerves and the hypnotic power of music was underlined in the work of the neurologist Jean-Martin Charcot, very famous, of course, Freud worked with him, and his experiments with hypnosis at the Salpetriere um, Hospital in Paris, in particular those using gongs and tuning forks on patients to provoke cataleptic fits, one of his stages of hysterical hypnosis. That's one of my favorite pictures in the entire world. Um, you see, that's a um, tuning fork, a normal tuning fork. And as far as Charcot was concerned, um, these women, and they're always women, uh, could be hypnotized just by playing a tuning fork, and they would go into a... See, with her tongue there, that's a cataleptic fit, as far as he's concerned. And Charcot, as far as... And what he, well, I'll go into it in a moment. Um, other figures... That, oh, in fact, I'll show you another picture, because that's even better. I had no idea that tuning forks came in that size. <laughs> I couldn't work out what it was for, for ages. And what she's sitting on is, in fact, a, a hollow box, essentially, that reverberated with it to intensify the effect. This is another woman going into a uh, hypnotic, cataleptic trance because of the music. Other figures of the Salpetriere, such as Paul Reynard, um, Paul Recher, Alfred Binet, Charles Ferré, who all became very famous, one way or another, also used tuning forks, gongs, and children's lullabies in their experiments. Music appear could take away women's willpower and leave them vulnerable to their own desires and the advances of unscrupulous hypnotizers. Um, yes, I should also say that Charcot, Charcot's only consideration was, um, was this a direct automatic reflex um, inside the brain or just in the um, oral nerves? He didn't think, um, some of his critics suggested it was all play acting or it was you know, a suggestion. Um, Charcot thought this was an, a reflex action, literally a reflex action. But as I said, it could um, also it could be very dangerous for um, unscrupulizing, uh, unscrupulous hypnotizers. Charcot's colleague Gilles de la Tourette of Tourette syndrome fame echoed the consensus when he linked hypnosis to female sexuality, writing that women are especially susceptible to hypnotic manipulation particularly during the period between their 13th and 30th year, so the peak of their sexuality. Such was the sexualized power dynamic involved in hypnosis that he rather blithely admitted that rapes under hypnosis were comparatively frequent. Um, the fact that patients were driven to catalepsy by sound were women places these experiments into the long discussion of hypnosis as male subversion of female will. The sexual implications of this kind of hypnosis are brought out in particular by an amazing study done by the American psychologist Aldred Worthen at the University of Michigan, 
Watching Wagnerites in raptures, Wathing concluded that they were in, and I quote, a condition of self-induced hypnosis caused by the music. And in 1894, he published an article in the Medical News which presented the results of his experiments, which involved playing Wagner to clinically hypnotized subjects. He'd been informed by colleagues, clinical colleagues, of cases in which subjects had been brought to orgasm while in a quasi-hypnotic stunt induced by listening to Wagner. But Ress said he could not replicate this result in his experiment. <laughs> Seriously. He did, however, suggest that experiments of this nature may be attended by danger. The symptoms of collapse developed at times. That's to say, while playing them, I suspect Tristan, in fact, while they were hypnotized, that there were symptoms of collapse developed at times, with the accompanying emotional shock, which might be increased beyond the point of safety. Um, by far the most famous novel to deal with this theme of music and hypnosis is perhaps, of course, um, Trilby, which is a rotten book, by the way. <laughs> also from 1894, from the same year, so in some ways the peak, in which the sinister Jewish impresario, uh, Svengali, he's the um, incredibly obnoxious um, and anti-Semitic caricature on the right, and the prose is actually even more kind of gruesomely anti-Semitic than this. It just has, you know, sort of uh, 15 adjectives in a row describing what kind of horrible Jew he is. It's really horrible. Um, but, of course, very famous um, for Svengali and Trilby invented the language. Uh, yes, Svengali hypnotizes the innocent Trilby, and uh, takes her around Europe and makes her a famous singer, even though she's shown no musical talent before, and manages to marry her. Um, even though he himself has his, his sexuality is questioned, he's made to he's described as being very thin and weak and having a horrible falsetto voice. So moving now on to uh, gynecology, um, this I came across this stuff. I just found one reference to music in one gynecological textbook when I was in the Wellcome Library a couple of years ago. And I thought, well, I'll just have a look through a few indexes. And it, literally every single 19th century book, pretty much, on gynecology, every single textbook at least, had an, in, an entry for music in the, um, in the index, which um, well, was the easiest day's work I've ever done. <laughs> the power of music to overstimulate the nerves and create nervous fatigue or a trance state was, of course, intimately connected to sexuality. Sexual excitement without legitimately married consummation was widely regarded as a prime cause of neurasthenia. Uh, George Miller Beard, who came up with the, the idea of neurasthenia, advocated not only marriage as a cure, that, which is to say legitimate sexuality, not you know companionship or something like that, but also the electrocution of patients' gentles as a cure for this condition. In fact, Marcel Proust's father wrote a whole book about how to do that. It's true. Um, in case you're interested. Uh, music's apparent sensuality uh, meant that it was often put into this context, uh, the context of the nerve uterine nexus that dominated much medical thinking on the female body. Often these concerns about music were related to moral, what you might call moral physiology, with the assumption that music, like the imagination, could over-excite the passions and lead to sickness via the mind, so to speak. So not directly via the nerves, but via the mind. In 1863, the Silesian physician Hermann Lebert suggested that his theory was most common amongst women with a strong sex drive, those stimulated by music, sentimentality, and masturbation. This is the context for the debate on the question of whether women's weak nerves made them unsuitable for the work of tuning pianos. There's a whole debate about this, in the, especially in the British press. Is it okay to let women, you know, widows, essentially, widows, um, tune pianos? And the consensus that emerged was that basically it was okay if married women did it. 
that's to say, legitimately sexually experienced. Um, but their younger, that's to say, virginal counterparts um, should be stopped by law. That was a consensus, at least in the press. There was no legislation. But they should stop by law from entering the profession of tuning pianos because the constant nervous stimulation would be too much. The assumed links between the health threat posed by music and sexuality led to a surprising level of interest in the subject amongst gynecologists, as I mentioned. The consequences for um, female fertility and reproductive health, especially menstruation, were a common topic of debate during the final decades of the 19th century. The idea that menstruation made women too weak for serious education and that education might adversely affect their menstrual cycle and reproductive health was a cornerstone of anti-feminist objections to female education in this period. Henry Maudsley, who was, I had a picture up of at the beginning, whose article Sex in Mind and Education was a significant intervention in this discussion, wrote that the stimulation of the female brain was dangerous after the establishment of periodical functions. They couldn't really think of a very good reason to stop, you know, eight and seven-year-old girls from being educated. But after the establishment of periodical functions, education should be more or less curtailed. A surprising and contradictory range of views concerning the relationship between female music making and the, and the functions of a healthy female reproduction were put forward by many of the most famous gynecologists of the century. Although many connected music to menstruation, there was no consensus about the nature of its effects. Indeed, although the assumed connection between music and menstruation was a commonplace, they all agreed that music and menstruation are definitely connected. That pretty much every gynecologist I can think of in the late 19th century believes that. They believe absolutely opposite and mutually exclusive things about it. Some took the view, uh, some taking the view that music was a potential source of sensuality, suggested that excessive music could overstimulate the body and lead to premature menstruation and sexualization. Others, as we shall see, portrayed music and more in terms of neurasthenic fatigue, arguing that music could so strain the nervous system that it could delay menstruation in teenage girls and prevent it among adult women. The French physician Paul Briquet's 1859 um, clinical treatise, a therapeutic and clinical treatise on hysteria, is one of the many books to suggest that music could lead to premature menstruation. That tends to be the, mostly the, the French think it's essential and the Americans think it's like maths. And some ways, Briquet was well disposed towards music. He says very nice things about music therapy. Um, but his colleague, Adam Rasiborski, the Paris-based Polish specialist in gynecology, who played a role in establishing this and the, uh, the fact of spontaneous ovulation, took a much tougher line in his 1868 treatise on menstruation, pointing to the French psychiatrist Jean-Pierre Faure's work linking nerves and suicide, Rasiborski expanded on this to write that music could promote the development of graphene follicles in the ovaries and precipitate the onset of ovulation. And he mused that the popularity of music amongst young ladies, again of the elite, might explain why menstruation appeared to begin early in that class. He didn't worry too much about diet and <laughs> health and all that stuff. Music is what, it, what made the difference. Um, his comments overtly linked the effects of music on menstruation to sexuality, writing that because of its effects on the nervous system, and I quote, music can serve as a stimulant in the genital sense, that we believe allows us to conclude that it can perhaps be regarded as a cause of the relative precocity of puberty amongst young girls of wealthy families. A quiet life in the countryside away from music would be his advice to the daughters of nervous mothers in order to avoid provoking, and I quote, ovarian orgasm through nervous excitement. The notion that musical overstimulation amongst teenage girls could lead to premature menstruation was expanded by the leading Scottish gynecological surgeon, Lawson Tate, in his 1877 Diseases of Women. 
where he blamed music for cases of overitis and its related excessive menstrual blood loss. He wrote that in such circumstances, the patient should be removed from school and that for six months, all instruction, especially music, should cease. He argued that music lessons were the cause, and I quote, of a great deal of menstrual mischief. Isn't that brilliant? Fantastic. Other doctors took an even tougher line. In his 1871 uh, system of hygiene, the German physician and noted medical opponent of music, Edward Reich, who is um, just a perfect a goldmine of fantastic quotes because he only ever says ridiculous things. He went to so far as to suggest that the erotic effect of music could have startling consequences for young women. He wrote, the relationship between music and sex life and especially menstruation is hardly ever mentioned. Not true. He lamented, excessive music causes significant excitation of the whole nervous system and especially the imagination. And this can lead in more than a few cases to premature awakening of the sex drive and the premature start of menstruation. Nor did he regard this as a minor issue. It could, he wrote, lead to passions, despair, suicide, vice, crime, madness, melancholy, and hysteria. The dangers of such, he seriously, again, suggested banning immoral music on health, public health grounds. In sharp contrast, these theories of the link between music and premature or excessive menstruation, other physicians argued that music was such a strain on young girls' bodies that it could, in fact, prevent it. For example, in his 1840 book uh, on menstruation considered in, its, in connection with its physiology and pathology, the French physician and psychiatrist Alexandre Biria de Boismont argued that music can lead to a lack of menstruation, citing Brousset. No sooner, he wrote, can a child express its first feelings than one lets it make ravishing music and devote hours to this art form. The nervous system, which is already so excitable, becomes even more excitable. He even implies that, and I quote, that because of music's effect on menstruation, it would be desirable but unrealistic to ban it. However, like many of his contemporaries, rather than regarding music as a form of education that should not be pushed too far with girls, he portrayed it as essential exercise that can be counteracted by formal education. He says, by gymnastic exercises, intellectual work, and more serious tasks than those that young girls normally devote themselves to. It's just like um, well, standard moralizing, really, that young girls should you know, be doing country runs instead of reading novels by themselves. More typical of those who argued that music could delay menstruation uh, was the view that it was a cause of neurasthenic fatigue, just in the same way as education was. It's particularly true amongst doctors in the United States, of course, the home of neurasthenia. The leading proponent of this theory was the influential gynecologist Thomas Addis Emmett, who argued in his very well-known um, Principles and Practice of Gynecology, that went into dozen, you know, many, many editions of 1884, that music's emotional influence made it, and I quote, capable of arresting the development of the uterus and ovaries. Rather than call, rather than call for girls to undertake more academic work in the manner of Boismont, Emmett regarded female education in general as a medical disaster, writing that, it is not practical to educate a girl by the same method found best for the boy, without entailing serious consequences for the ovaries will always be arrested in their growth if the brain is forced. Emmett's views were widely shared. For example, the Colorado physician Herbert Work, who bizarrely later ran for the Senate and served as U.S. Postmaster General in the 20s and 30s, gave a, a series of case studies of girls whose musical, musical education had adversely affected their menstruation and general health. He gives maybe a dozen examples of Miss H started playing the piano too much and then she became anemic and etc. The association of female music making with the subject of higher education of women put the medical critique of music into the context of the sometimes bitter political debate on the education of the new woman. 
as I mentioned at the beginning, the, the question of whether or not women should be allowed to attend university, should they be allowed to get degrees, caused an amazing amount of fuss. It's very well known, from the, especially from the 1870s onwards. There was a riot, I understand, at St. Andrews against this in the 20s, was that? I can't remember. Um, in any case, for, the, for people at Emmett who regard music as really as a form of hard intellectual work that forces the brain rather than sensuality, music fits in very nicely into this context. Uh, the new ultra, new woman, Herbert Work wrote in his discussion of music's dangers, is the result of the blighted instincts involved in place of a distinctly feminine emotion. Another American physician writing in the same journal, Frank Parsons Norbury, also made a strong connection between the health consequences of music and the new woman, blaming overwork for most mental illness among women, which led, he argued, to a broken-down nervous system and broken engagements, which is to say failed sexuality, not the excessive sexuality that so many of the French worried about and that we heard about even with James Johnson in the 1830s. It's this idea that it will make you... Um, dry, desiccated, incapable of having a fulfilled sex, married sex life. He placed music lessons at the heart of his critique of musical education, writing that, I have observed that female students of music afford typical cases of neurasthenia, i.e. there is more profound general nervous disturbance than in cases of overwork from mental work alone. In one graduating class from, conservatory, from a conservatory of music, I have four cases, three of whom had to be stimulated to, allow, to enable them to carry out their program. Um, I don't know exactly what he means. I suspect he means electrically. Um, in the case of the opponents of musical education, such as Emmett, Norbury, or Work, the medical hostility is clearly part of this broader objection to female education, and indeed female interference beyond the domestic sphere in general. This essentially political aspect certainly explains much of the medical critique of music and female education in this period. In the face of the collapse of traditional ideological, the, the traditional ideological basis of gender hierarchies, Music was used, medicine was used to provide a rationale for the status quo. The model of music as a source of mental strain associated with neurasthenia seemed to offer a clear argument against music just as much, uh, just as, much to, as to female education in general. However, the, this does not explain other aspects of the debate, uh, such as why um, was music's position as a healthy domestic refinement for ladies apparently so contested by some musicians, uh, physicians when others blithely accepted it as a respectable and genteel pastime or why other physicians, notably Brier de Boismont, regarded intellectual activity not as a similar threat, um, but as an antidote. This question relates perhaps to music's essentially ambiguous position as an art that is both rational and mathematical on the one hand, and at the same time sensual and irrational, uh, which, is, which in terms of female education amounts to asking whether music is a dry subject that would strain the brain or a sensual one that would overstimulate the imagination. The very nature of music, therefore, meant that both models of music's pathological effects could appeal to obvious aspects of music. The fatigue of neurasthenia meant that music could be a medical threat, even if it remained chaste and intellectual. On the other hand, musical sensuality, the undue sexual excitement that Norbury saw as central to music's dangers, had been criticized on moral grounds since Plato, but was now incorporated into a medical critique of female musical excitement as bad for the nerves. This older traditional moral medical critique of music sensuality seems to prove the more resilient. Although the notion that, musical, that female education, including musical education, is a source of nervous fatigue generally went out of fashion during the 20th century, the idea of music as a potential cause of hysteria and sickness among women continued, well, frankly, until the present day. For instance, in the context of jazz, this is one of my favorites, this is a music magazine, the big best-selling music magazine from the 20s in America, 
This is a picture of the music maniac and her victim. And um, even more famously, perhaps Beatle mania. The idea that young girls, if could be overstimulated by music, become hysterical. You don't have to go back to the 19th century to find examples. This fantastic picture uh, comes from William Sargent's book, um, The Mind Possessed, The Physiology of Possession, Mysticism, and Faith Healing. Um, and it says, Beetle Possession. And, he's, he put, and it's next to pictures of basically voodoo ceremonies and people writhing on the ground and stuff. Um, all right, thank you very much. I'm sorry, I ran out a bit. Of, bit of, thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.